I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Well, words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Magnus punches reality presented by two true freaks I'm your host Magnus and what I do is talk about comics movies and TV shows but let's cut the bullshit primarily comics and in relation to that today I'm gonna to be talking about a comic book that it's been talked about in at least one podcast that I can think of and I speak here of fr- from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, episode number 155. That's 155. Basically, Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey, which is to say the hosts of From Crisis to Crisis, talked about this comic book way back in the day. Now, Michael Bailey has gone on the record with me, you know, in private communication, which is to say private messages sent to one another on Facebook saying that it's his opinion that he doesn't have some sort of a monopoly or some kind of an exclusive claim or anything like that to the Burn Age Superman and that anybody who wants to talk about it can in fact talk about it and that's all well and good but the way I the way I look at it the policy I'm trying to abide by is to let them have the first shot at everything, you know? So if they haven't talked about a given a Burn Age uh, Superman comic book just yet, well, maybe I should hold off until they've had a chance. Now, that's just sort of a general guideline that I've come up with. That's not something that Bailey has asked me to do. But I just thought, you know, in the interest of... You can't really call it professional courtesy now, can you? But I guess, you know, just in the interest of courtesy of some kind, I'd let them, as much as I can, let them have the first crack at this stuff, right? And it's been a pretty long time since they talked about the comic book that I'm going to be talking about today. And you might ask yourself what comic book I'm going to be talking about today, and I'll just go ahead and answer that. Superman, The Man of Steel, number 28. It's been so long now since they've since they've talked about Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28, that 
Well, as I say, they have uh, Bailey has said that they have no exclusivity on anything. And so even by the guideline that I just kind of pulled out of thin air to let them have first crack at everything, well, it was quite a few years ago when they when they finally got around to covering this comic. And so seemed like now is actually going to be pretty good time for me to talk about it. And the reason I want to talk about this comic is, well, I may actually want to get into that after I deal with the official particulars, but I, I guess just to just sort of quickly summarize what this opening mon uh, monologue is supposed to be all about. What I'm going to be talking about today is Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28. And as I say, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor both talked about this back in From Crisis to Crisis, episode number 155. Again, number 155. And guys, just full disclosure here. I have not listened to that episode in like, I don't even know, like three or four years or however long ago it came out. It's a pretty freaking long time ago, and I just have not listened to it since that time, right? So I really don't remember exactly what it is that they said about this comic. And I kind of like it that way because I don't want to intentionally replicate what they did, because if I'm just going to copy what they did, why am I here? So I haven't listened to that. So, you know, it may be actually kind of interesting to compare what I say to what they say. But before you listen to what I say, you need to listen to what they say. So again, From Crisis to Crisis, episode number 155, I believe, is the episode where Bailey and Taylor talked about Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28. So if you haven't listened to that yet, just go ahead and put this episode on pause Fire up uh, iTunes or Juice or whatever it is that you use to listen to podcasts. Listen to their show about Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28, and then come back here. So that, I think, is basically it, at least as far as like the particulars and introductions and preambles and whatnot. So to get into the actual comic, again, this is Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28. Cover date is December of 1993. The on-sale date is October the 12th of 1993. Cover price is a buck fifty. Title is The Professionals. Jeez, you know, with a title like that, you might almost think that Natalie Portman has a cameo appearance somewhere in, in this movie. Or not this movie, in this comic. So, hmm. Anyway, writer is Louise Simonson. Penciler is Chuck. I'm guys. I'm just gonna do my best to to pronounce this. Wachtowitz. It's spelled. His last name is spelled W O J T K I E W I C Z S or C Z. I should say I C Z. So. I'm guessing that's supposed to be Chuck Wachtowitz, but I don't know. So I reserve the right to be wrong. And Chuck, in the unlikely event that you're listening to this and I just mangled your, your last name, dude, I apologize. In, uh, Inker is Dennis... Here's another name I kind of struggle with. My understanding is that his last name is supposed to be pronounced Yankee. So Dennis Yankee. 
Letterer is Bill Oakley. Now there's an easy name to pronounce. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. Story summary is as follows. At the Daily Planet, Lois is showing Perry her article on LexCorp and its involvement in insurance fraud. Clark's superhearing picks up gunfire, and he zips off to investigate street gangs using super weapons called Toastmasters. He gets some unexpected assistance in stopping the gang by Steel. Steel says that his armor got destroyed back in the battle in Engine City, so he's giving up being a superhero. For right now, his plan is to move back to Washington, D.C. and further investigate just how these Toastmasters keep finding their way into circulation with these criminal street gangs. Elsewhere, Cat Grant assures her son that Jose leaving is not his fault. Which, I'm just going to have to put this story summary on pause and say, you know, that... I, I, I think that's a, just a little bit of ill-advised parenting. My personal philosophy is that you need to give your child a certain amount of guilt, you know? So, for example, what Kat maybe could have told Adam is, yeah, Jose leaving, it's because of you, Adam. He never loved you. He didn't even really like you all that much. And really the reason that I'm living now, once again, as a single mother it really is your fault. You need to know that. And the reason for that is because, guys, Adam Morgan lives in a world where costumed superheroes and people that have superpowers are just a normal, everyday occurrence, right? And every single superhero seems to have some kind of fucking sob story going on somewhere in his background. And this could have been Adam's, you know? I use the past tense there. Well, we'll come back to that. Anyway, so to get back into the story summary, though, over at LexCorp, Lex Luthor II fires one of his employees for talking to Lois Lane, which is, that ended up serving as kind of as inspiration for a little bit of an expose that Lois had uh, published in the Daily Planet earlier in this very same issue, on page one, in fact. At the rich estate of uh, of the Black Hand family in Philadelphia, A group of assassins known as Nuclear Waste, consisting of Strongbox, Fadeout, PDQ, and Hard Knocks, because, guys, this was the 90s, and so you kind of needed to have silly names like that. A group of assassins known as Nuclear Waste eliminate the group of thugs inside. After they're done, they receive a message from Happy Sid quote-unquote, to take care of something that's become an embarrassment for LexCorp. What do you want to bet that this is somehow related to that self-same employee that Lex terminated just a couple of pages earlier? Meanwhile, after Superman stops a tornado from destroying a home, Clark and Lois discuss a kid who has gone missing. Lois gets called away to investigate a hostage uh, situation that's taking place at the top of a nursing home. When Superman shows up out of the middle of fucking nowhere, he discovers that the hostages in this entire situation, this was all a ruse designed to get attention from the media so that the people who live inside the nursing home can tell their story of what a horrible state that the entire building is in. Elsewhere, 
in an unknown lair, bloodthirst. Guys, again, the 90s. Elsewhere, in an unknown lair, bloodthirst is implanting special devices into an unknown patient. The implants will give this person the ability to summon weapons at will. Elsewhere, two children are on top of a subway train uh, spray-painting Superman Lives as part of a gang initiation. One of these child, uh, one, one, or rather one of these children, is Keith from The Orphanage, and it has been very adequately demonstrated in far too many previous issues of Superman the Man of Steel to ever hope to count. Keith pretty much has no survival instinct whatsoever. Keith is more or less to the Burn Age Superman, what Jimmy Olsen was to the Silver Age Superman, right? The guy is perpetually in danger of winning the gold medal in the Darwin Awards, and probably would if not for Superman's non-stop timely intervention. Anyway, all of this is happening as part of a gang initiation. The train begins to move before they're finished, and one of them almost falls off the train. Keith yells for Superman's help, and Superman swoops in to save the day because he has one ear constantly attuned to Keith because, God forbid, you never know what that stupid kid might pull next. I'm shit. Just the other day, Superman caught Keith washing out power sockets with water. Power sockets. I'm just going to let that sink in. At that same moment, a Lexcom satellite's orbit begins to decay and it starts falling back down to Earth. Superman sees it, flies up, and shoots it back into space. Back in the unknown lair, Bloodthirst, because again, guys, 1990s, Bloodthirst and his unknown accomplice discuss their plans to test and then best Superman. When Superman returns from orbit, he sees a man drowning under the Hobbs River Bridge. As he swoops down to investigate, he gets ambushed by the nuclear waste mercenaries. A battle ensues, and they try to distract him, but Superman rushes, rushes into the water to save the drowning man. At the same time, Superman also hears the cries of the missing girl men mentioned earlier in this issue. Her captor, and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this, it's the Toy Man, her captor attempts to comfort her with a toy and the assurance that she won't be alone for long as he plans to kidnap Cat Grant's son, Adam. The drowning man turns out to be the LexCorp employee who was fired for talking to Lois Lane earlier in this issue. Superman's unable to hear the crying girl anymore and assumes that whatever was going wrong has been put right. He then rushes off to save more people as Lois starts becoming concerned that he's overdoing it since he came back from the dead. This is either the end or to be continued. But however you choose to look at it, that is certainly the end of this issue. So what did I think? Well, one of the reasons that I chose this particular issue to talk about, apart from the fact that I just felt like talking about some Superman comics because fuck you, that's why, one of the reasons I selected this issue specifically to talk about is I've just got kind of fond memories of this general era of Superman in the Bronze Age, right? 
I was hardcore collecting Superman round about this time, and it I just remember this being a really inspired time uh, for Superman. This is it's basically that that sort of that sweet spot right after Reign of the Superman wrapped up. But before, forgive me, before the Superman titles just kind of lost the point, starting in about the mid to late 90s, we're still in a little bit of that early 90s Superman goodness. And so as a result, the creative teams, at least superficially, it's like they were firing on all cylinders, and a lot of interesting things looked to be building up on the horizon. Now, how true was that in actual fact? Well, eye of the beholder, I suppose. But that general era right after Superman came back uh, from the dead, that, that reign of the Superman story wrapped up, and basically the status quo began to sort of reassert itself. This was just a fun time for comics. So that's generally the way I try to remember this general vintage of Superman. Now, guys, I'm not going to bullshit any of you. The simple fact of the matter is that a lot of the stuff that happened during the mid to late 90s, and God knows the stuff that happened all through the 2000s, it kind of made me start thinking, you know what? Maybe Superman really did die at the hands of Doomsday. And maybe, maybe he never really came back from that. You know? Maybe it's better, considering some of the shit that, was, that got published later on down the line, maybe it really is better that when Superman died... He stayed that way, you know? So that hadn't really started creeping into my sensibilities as to the, the Burn Age Superman, at least when this issue came out, but God knows that was on my mind later. And it does somewhat call, like as far as my headcanon is concerned, it does somewhat call the canonicity of this issue into question, but I choose not to talk about that, at least for right now. So to take it literally from the beginning... You've got the cover... Oh, sorry. Actually, before we even get into the beginning, one, one of the other reasons that I wanted to talk about this issue is precisely because of the fact that it was drawn by uh, Chuck uh, Wachtowitz. Again, if Chuck, I doubt you're listening to this, but in the event that you are, and if I'm totally butchering your name, dude, I apologize. So, anyway... But one of the reasons why I settled on this issue is precisely because of the fact that it has a fill-in artist. And it's not that I don't like John Bogdano's art, because I really do. You know, I mean, I do enjoy his work. Having said that, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys that his work is not an acquired taste. Because when you start thinking about, I guess, the overall look of Superman at this time... You basically had Dan Jurgens over in Superman. You had Tom Grummet over in Adventures of Superman. And then you had Jackson Geis over in Action Comics. And yeah, Tom Grummet was a little bit more cartoony. Not cartoons, you understand, but just a little bit cartoony as far as his style is concerned. 
Dan Jurgens, he had a little bit more of a grounded and just sort of, I guess, realistic type of approach with the material. And then you had Jackson Geis and his work, guys, I just do not get into really at all. I mean, to me, I kind of want to put Jackson Geis's work on Superman along the same lines of basically anything that Dick Dillon did in the late 70s and early 80s. It just had this kind of awkward, stiff, cramped type of style to it. And I just, I really, after a certain point, I just really don't get into Jackson Geis on Superman. I mean, there came a point when, and I swear to think that it was actually right after Reign of the Superman ended, there came a point when Jackson Geis's work, it just turned. I don't know how else to put it. It, it, it just whatever it was that I was willing to tolerate about his line style before was gone after Reign of the Superman, right? I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's nice. I'm not saying it's polite or, or even, for that matter, all that respectable. I'm just saying that there's something about his art. And guys, you know what? It could just be the inkers that he worked with. I don't know. All I know is that the work... Okay. The stuff that I paid money for generally just really wasn't up to my taste. You understand? So then you start getting into John Bogdanov, though, right? And like I say, I like his work, but it is a little bit of an acquired taste, and it's even though I do think I've acquired that taste, his work sometimes, even now, still sort of leaves me a little bit cold. There came a point, I guess starting with, golly, a lot of people's art styles changed, I guess, beginning with, or circa, Reign of the Superman. But starting with Reign of the Superman, John Bogdano's work, it just went in a kind of a strange direction. So I guess... Before Reign of the Superman came along, he had this sort of Joe Schuster-ish or John Sakella-ish type of style. And then it, again, it just turned, right? And so as a result, there was the work, it could either, I mean, it, it was a little hit and miss as far as what I find pleasing with art, you know? I'm not insulting John Bogdanov, and I'm certainly not insulting... Jackson guys, I'm just saying that in terms of my personal sensibilities, in terms of what I want from comic book art, it's just not along those lines. It's not bad work. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that my personal preferences go in a different direction. And that is a very long way of saying that's actually part of the reason why I chose Superman, the Man of Steel, number 28. It's because that John Bogdanov, apart from the cover, which I'll get to momentarily, apart from the cover, he really doesn't have too much of anything to do with this issue, you know? And so it's kind of interesting to see Dennis Yankee inking somebody in a style that, at this point, it's become very familiar, but it's not so familiar. It's not a John Bogdanov ripoff, it is still a kind of a breath of fresh air, whether it was intended to be or not. That's kind of the point here, right? Now, 
to finally get into the cover, though, it's basically this sort of a glory shot of Superman. It looks like he's getting struck by lightning or something like that. And the dialogue balloon, which you didn't see a whole lot of, uh, you know, back in back in those days. You know, it wasn't all that common a thing to see dialogue balloons on a cover. But this cover, by golly, has a dialogue balloon. And it says, it tickles. And... There's a little inscription at the bottom of the cover that says Bog and Jank 93 after Schuster and Boring. And I think I can't tell if this says 41 or 43, but a pretty fucking long time ago. Put it that way. And that actually got my I guess at that point I would have been 13 years old. Actually, wait, hold on. Wait, let me double check that. When did this thing come out? Because I might not have been. Yeah, no, I was still 12 when this issue came out. So that got my little 12-year-old brain a little bit curious. So I did some research and came uh, came to find out that this cover is a... It's a sort of, kind of, sort of tribute to the cover of Superman uh, number 32 from the 1940s. And it's basically Superman getting... Uh, shocked by a shitload of uh, bolts of lightning. And the dialogue balloon on the cover thereof says, say it with me, it tickles. And this is meant to be kind of a a tribute to that. It's not a remake of it, uh, because the the postures are very different, the facial expressions are very different, Um, Superman's general, like, alignment on both of the covers, totally different, camera angles totally different. You know, basically everything about this is totally different. It's basically John Bogdanov working with, I guess, the basic idea of the Superman number 32 cover, but kind of going in his own direction with it. I actually think it looks really cool. You know, that's just me. It, it just looks neat, you know, and the, um, Cover text says all charged up, and we're going to be coming back to that in a little bit because that is arguably a little bit of foreshadowing, but all in good time. So to finally get into it, right here on page one, we've got Clark and Perry. They're basically strolling through the uh, Daily Planet newsroom, and they're basically giving some exposition to catch new readers up on what's going on with Clark's living situation right now. You've got Perry, and he says, So, you decided to move in with Olsen. How are you holding up? And Clark's reply to that is, Jimmy's expanding my appreciation for certain ultra-modern forms of rock, and I would have to assume that that relates somehow to the spin doctors, and um, I don't know. Anyway... Clark goes on to say, They tell me I might be able to get my old apartment back, but with the housing situation in Metropolis so tight now, I'd have to win the lottery to afford it. Which kind of says a little something-something about the cost of rent in Metropolis right now and the price gouging that's going on. So, just kind of interesting, I suppose. Now, this is kind of one of of the things that I sort of like about... When the Daily Planet newsroom is illustrated well, the artist will use that as, I guess, a little bit of a uh, an opportunity to do some universe building. And so 
in this case, what we see on a, a pillar coming uh, coming out of the ceiling, we see two old Daily Planet uh, back issues. The headline of one of them says "Allies Hit Normandy," and then another one uh, another one says "We Win." And so that first one, the Allies Hit Normandy one, seems like a pretty clear reference to World War II. The other one, We Win, when you think about it, that could refer to any of a number of things, including, I suppose, World War II. And it is a reminder that, you know, the Daily Planet, it has a history, you know? And moreover, it doesn't just cover, you know, Superman's latest exploits, you know? It covers the news, you know? It covers world events. And again, that I like that. That works for me. A woman is, also in panel one, a woman is uh, refilling her coffee cup, and she's using a Lexomatic coffee machine uh, to make her coffee. And again, this just kind of relates to the universe building that you can do with these types of scenes, that seriously, LexCorp, they've got their own line of coffee makers. Coffee makers, you know? That's how uh, diversified LexCorp really is, you know? And I don't know. I just, I kind of like that. I I especially liked it when I was a kid. And I liked the fact that you could buy a Lextel uh, TV. You could buy a Lexomatic uh, coffee machine. You could buy Lex phones. You know, that basically there's nothing that exists anywhere on the market that LexCorp doesn't make their own version of in some way or another. I dig that, you know? Anyway... So from there, we get a little bit more um, exposition. This basically shows, uh, in panel two and then going forward from there, it basically shows Lois Lane talking about her story with uh, Perry White. And it's basically about fraudulent activities, for lack of a better way of putting it, that LexCorp appears to be involved in. Now, Lois makes a point of saying that she was careful not to name Lex Luthor II specifically in the article because he denies any knowledge, but it's a little hard to believe for everybody that he knew nothing about any of this. And this is where this issue kind of takes a little bit of a turn in as much as you've got Perry saying that Franklin Stern's conservative and pro-business he told me that he admires what young Luther's done with LexCorp. He's not going to be happy about this. And Lois's answer to that is, well, he may be the publisher, but he can't change those facts. And Lois then says aloud, you know, I'm starting to think Lex Luther II's not the good little boy that he wants us to believe he is. And guys, that is a major plot point that's going to get developed in issues to come, this is where that starts getting built up, is right here. Page one, panel three, Lois, for the first time, considering the possibility that maybe, just maybe, Lex Luthor II isn't on the side of the angels, you know? Now, the reader is well aware of the fact by this point that Lex Luthor II doesn't even really exist, in a sense. He's basically the cloned and, I guess, genetically perfected body of the original Lex Luthor with 
said original Lex Luthor's uh, brain and eyeballs implanted into this clone, right? The reader knows that most of the characters don't. And so for Lois to, to finally start having any kind of suspicions whatsoever about Lex Luthor II, guys, it's a big fucking deal, you know? And the, the fact is, I mean, I remember reading this comic for the first time, and the significance of that single line of dialogue was lost on me at that time. You know, because I'd, kind of, I'd kind of settled into a... Well, I, I shouldn't say a rut, because what's a rut? But I'd kind of settled into, I suppose, the status quo of Lex Luthor II being thought of as basically a good guy, but in fact, he's, well, he is Lex Luthor, you know? And this was aided somewhat by the fact that Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, had premiered only a couple of months before this, or like one month before this. And so what I'd thought is the TV show would, as much as possible, try to keep up with the comics, and the comics, for their part, would try to keep up with the TV show. I mean, there are certain things that are just going to be different between the two of them, such as the fact that in the comics, Lois knows that Clark is Superman and they're engaged to one another, whereas in the TV show, she had no idea that he was Superman, and they most assuredly were not engaged to one another. But otherwise, they would try to... Both of them would, would basically try to stay in the same lanes for the most part, right? And that was basically the assumption that I had as far as where the comics would be going in the future, right? Who knew? So, anyway, what I'm saying is that I remember reading this for the first time, and the significance of this wasn't immediately apparent. In fact, it wasn't really at all apparent until I did a a, a reread of, I think, the entire year of 1993. Sometime in, like, 1994. It may have been the summer of 1994, now that I think back on it. But anyway, wasn't readily apparent at the time. That's a point. So, anyway. Another thing, and we're going to be talking more about this in a moment. Another thing that gets introduced here is, uh, Perry says in the fourth panel, Speaking of boys, another kid has gone missing. A girl this time. Clark, do do you want to take... And that's about as far as he gets when he notices that Clark is now gone. But again, this is a pretty big deal. This is a plot point. We're going to revisit it actually in this very issue. So maybe I'll just keep my comments about that to myself. Meanwhile, and now we're getting into pages two and three. Meanwhile, on pages two and three... We basically see a gang firefight. It's basically a, a, a six-on-one battle um, between rival gangs. One of them has a Toastmaster, but even with a Toastmaster, he's going down. I mean, he's going to lose the fight. There's just no two ways around that. So out of nowhere swings John Henry Irons. He does this weird sort of ninja kick to the Toastmaster guy, takes his gun away from him, the other gang members close in, and they're about to blow both of them into the next lifetime, and it looks like it's curtains. Curtains, you hear me? Curtains! When all of a sudden, Superman swoops out of nowhere, tackles the gang members, and then basically pushes them into a building now, and he knocks them through the boarded-up windows. 
which seems a little overkill, doesn't it? Anyway, so John basically takes down the last remaining gang member, and another gang member from the rival gang wiggles his way free and basically begs to be sold the Toastmaster. He basically says, name your price and just let me have the gun. Well, John Henry Irons has a self-appointed task to destroy Toastmasters everywhere he finds them. So there's no amount of money that you can offer him where he's going to sell out. I mean, he's going to destroy these guns. And indeed, that's what he does here. He destroys this gun with his bare fucking hands. He just smashes it against a what looks like a metal railing, just smashes it into pieces, and um, the gang guy is, needless to say, prepared to hold a funeral over that. So Superman and John Henry, and this is on... Why don't they number these fucking pages, I swear? Golly, none of these fucking pages are numbered. What the fuck? This is... Was the... Okay, is my is my memory just playing tricks on me? Because I don't remember this being like a big fucking like hipster trend until sometime in the 2000s. But was this just like a thing in the 90s too? That like the comic book publishers decided, Hey, we're not going to number the fucking pages because fuck you. Ho, ho, ho. God, that's annoying. Anyway... Yeah, this is page four. Thanks for nothing, assholes. Anyway, so page four, it looks like uh, the gang member basically wants to hold a funeral for the Toastmaster that John Henry just destroyed. Then on page five, Superman and John Henry have turned the... They've turned uh, the thugs over to the cops, and they're basically giving us a little bit more of exposition on the sly. John Henry says, another Toastmaster off the streets. Little too much juice on that tackle there, wasn't it? And Superman says, yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to play Wrecking Crew there. And guys, again, a plot point is being laid out there. Something's going to get set up. Superman, up to this point, has usually had virtually perfect control over his powers. And he seemed slightly out of control there for just a second, so what the hell is going on? That's what you're supposed to be asking yourself. So, John Henry basically brushes that under the rug and says, don't sweat it. The building was condemned anyway. So, Superman says, where's your armor, John? And John replies, look, that, that armor got completely jacked up in the Engine City battle, and so I'm basically retired now. I've gone back to civilian life, and hell, I'm actually pre uh, preparing to move back to Washington, D.C., because I have some dot, 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 unfinished business there. Some questions about how the Toastmasters ever got into circulation in the first place. Questions that can only be answered by the people for whom I used to work. They think I'm dead, which is just as well, because blah, 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 blah. Superman says, look, if you need help, give me a shout. I've got your back. Superman swoops off and is seen by Adam and Cat Grant. Now, this is where I kind of have to call bullshit on the premise of this story, that Adam basically ignores his mom, who I should say is carrying pizza around. Adam ignores his mom, who's carrying pizza around. Adam 
pays no attention whatsoever to his mom, even though she's armed with pizza. No. Sorry. I don't buy it. Anyway. So, Adam sees that Superman is swooping around outside, so he charges across the room, knocks over a picture of Jose Delgado on his way there, just so he can ogle Superman flying around. And Kat kind of gets a little pissed off about that. She says, Adam, it looked like you almost broke it on purpose. And he says, well, so what? You always liked him better than me anyway. And now he's gone. As gone as that crummy photo. And it's, like I said before, instead of taking the opportunity to reinforce all of this and say, yeah, Adam, this really was your fault. If you weren't around, he would still be around. He left because of you. You know, no, Kat doesn't say that. She basically bullshits the kid a bit. Well, it's not your fault and blah, 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 boo-hoo-hoo. Anyway, so moving right along, we get into page number I have no fucking idea because they don't number these pages, but it's basically Lex Luthor II having it out with uh, Beasley, the source for Lois Lane's article, and... Basically, Beasley says, look, we just got to talking. It was a friendly conversation. And who'd have thought that she'd turn this whole thing into some kind of an investigation? And Lex says, look, I don't like my foreman speculating about LexCorp business. Get your paycheck and get out. You're fired. So Beasley basically loses his shit over that and says, you think your employees are a flock of brainless sheep? That none of us know what's going on? Well... Let me tell you, I see the whole picture now, and there's no reason not to spill it. And Supergirl, at least in this vintage of her characterization, Supergirl, not too swift on the uptake because she never even once considers the possibility that, you know what, her boyfriend may be a real scumbag. And guys, on the one hand, that seems a little hard to believe, but guys, just think about it. This was a chick who was created... I realize this origin story is going to be a little hard for some of you to follow, but just hear me out. This is not Kara Zor-El, all right? This is a protoplasmic, shape-shifting clone of Lana Lang that was created in a parallel universe by that universe's Lex Luthor. And that universe's Lex Luthor was a good guy. Not a great guy, necessarily, but he was pretty good. And in this Supergirl's recollection, he was probably the greatest hero that she personally knew, you know? And it's not a stretch to think that she'd kind of fallen in love with him on some level, you know? And so when she finds herself in this universe and she sees a guy that looks more or less the same as the man that she fell in love with back in the pocket universe, yeah, I could buy that she would fall in love with him and maybe, just maybe, be a little bit blind to some of Lex Jr.'s flaws. Yeah, that seems reasonable. I totally buy that. And, you know, there are times when it gets a little bit aggravating, but that's what I kind of have to keep reminding myself, you know? She's operating literally from good faith. I mean, this is all she knows, you know? And it would be unthinkable to her that Lex Luthor 
and supervillain ever belong in the same sentence together. And so her basically, her undying loyalty to the guy, like I say, it's an easy thing to believe in. You know, now excuse me, we'll have a few drags off of my e-cig here. Anyway, so all of that having happened, Lex Luthor II turns to face his assistant, which is to say Sidney Happerson. He turns to face his assistant and says, take measures to ensure that LexCorp is no longer embarrassed by Beasley's bumbling. Elsewhere, we get, basically, this is our introduction to Toxic Waste, the group, the assassin group, and in pretty short order, you get a basic idea of what all of their powers are. I mean, from the outset, you already know they're bad guys. You know, this we all know. But you, who are they? And more importantly, what are their powers? And you get a pretty decent idea of that right away. Well, you get a somewhat, I, you get somewhat of an idea. PDQ, actually, his power is a little bit ambiguous. I mean, is he flying? Or is he jumping around at super speed? Is he super jumping? Uh, who the fuck knows? But he's doing something, and he's keeping the guard dogs distracted so that Strongbox can use his super strength and crash through a wall. And basically, what unfolds here, it's basically a fairly typical mob hit that you've seen probably a thousand times, but what makes this unique is the fact that this involves supervillains. And when you think about it, because I'd never really considered something like this before when I was a kid, but, you know, when you think about it, it is, it is kind of logical that, you know what, if you live in a world where superheroes, or at least people with superpowers, are just a thing, yeah, it makes sense that some of them are going to do murder for hire. Why not? I mean... Bullets will only be of limited use against most of them anyway, so why not do it, you know? I mean, if you've already got very little regard for human life to begin with in the first place, it's just one less step you have to take to be a professional assassin if you wake up one morning and find you fallen bass backwards into having powers. I mean, yeah, this is kind of an easy thing for me to believe in, you know? And this was kind of a fresh idea to me at the time, you know? And I kind of liked the idea of not necessarily super villains as such, but basically a bunch of losers who would otherwise be losers somehow getting powers and they're, and then them using that for, among other things, not just petty crime, but specifically assassinations and things like that. I kind of like that idea, you know? Doing all this stuff for hire, being sort of like professional hitmen and stuff like that. Yeah, that works for me. And you could charge people basically whatever you want, knowing that they'll pay it because, you know, who's to say that maybe whoever you're going after doesn't have some kind of superpowered protection, some kind of superpower bodyguard or something like that on the payroll themselves. So, yeah, you could probably do that, you know? It it makes sense. So anyway, they basically kill everybody there as I assume was their was their mandate. And then from there, Hard Knox gets uh, a notification on his beeper because fucking this was the 90s and beepers were kind of a thing back then. 
gets a message on his beeper from Happy Sid. Gee, I wonder who that is. Saying that he has a commission for... Sorry, not toxic waste. I said toxic waste earlier. I meant nuclear waste. He wants nuclear waste to handle an embarrassment for LexCorp. Dun, dun, dun! So, elsewhere, Superman is putting in some serious fucking overtime because he's uh, saved a trailer park from a tornado. How's that for playing into stereotypes? And then from there, Clark rushes back to the Daily Planet newsroom, wherein he discovers what we readers found out about earlier in the story, the, uh, the uh, missing girl who's been kidnapped, it seems. Her name is Stacy McCall. Lois interviewed her, her mom, and this is actually kind of some interesting dialogue. She says, they, meaning Stacy and her mom, they were shopping at Latimer's for a first communion dress. Mom glanced away, and when she looked back, Stacy was gone. And I don't know. I mean, that's right there. You kind of start thinking, well, if she only glanced away, whoever took the kid, they've got a they've got to move pretty fucking fast, right? So anyway, this whole thing gets interrupted by somebody or other random background person announcing that there's a there's a hostage situation brewing on the rooftop of the Silverdale nursing home. Lois calls it, rushes off to the nursing home. And I, I need to say here that just her outfit here, it just seems very Superman the Animated Series to me, even though that that show was not even on the horizon at this point, I don't think. And the the outfit that she eventually wore on that show, it didn't it, it didn't look like this per se, but you could see her wearing something like this on Superman the Animated Series. It's this sort of this uh, thigh-length sort of dress or skirt with a blouse or whatever the fuck. She's got this belt wrapped around her waist. It just looks kind of sort of vintage 1940s to me. Not like full 1940s, but it looks a little 40s to me. And that was kind of the wardrobe that Terry Hatcher wore on the first season of Lois and Clark anyway. And I've always kind of liked that look for Lois, you know? I don't know why, but there's something about her I just always want to see her in kind of not, again, not actual vintage 1940s type stuff, but just sort of like 1940s kind of influenced type stuff, you know? Does that make sense? So anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I don't need to see Lois Lane wearing a pair of jeans most of the time, you know? So anyway, so Lois arrives at the Silverdale nursing home. She tries talking the hostages down. And, you know, right there, I kind of I find it hard to believe that the police... Well, this came through on the police radio. I assume the police would have the area cordoned off. And I seriously fucking doubt they would let Lois fucking lane through to talk to these people. But whatever. The story needs for her to be up there talking to the, the hostages and the hostage taker. So... I go with it. Superman swoops out of nowhere and melts the the captor's gun, only to discover that's not actually a gun. It's plastic. It looks like a real gun, but it's made of plastic. It's like a water gun. And, you know, this is... I think by 1993, we were kind of in the last gasp of that era when toy, uh, toy manufacturers and toy companies would make realistic-looking water guns. You know... I remember having a realistic 
water gun when I was a kid. It looked kind of like a a semi a nine millimeter semi automatic, and you know it kind of came to be known that you know it could be dangerous to carry one of those around because if a police officer sees that he might not realize right away that it's that it's just a, a, a squirt gun. He may think that's the real thing. And bad shit could happen as a result of that, you know? But it was kind of that sweet spot where those guns were only... I think they were only just starting to be taken off the shelves by this point. And so, yeah, you might have still been able to find plastic toy squirt pistols on the shelves that are painted to look like the real thing. You won't find them anymore, but you maybe you could back then, you know? Anyway, so one of the other uh, old fogies from the nursing home says, you bet it's plastic. Le- let Cal alone, you bully. And that's when it comes out that this whole thing was basically staged to get media attention. And again, I mean, this I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that like this was ripped from the headlines or something like that. I mean, maybe it was. I I don't know. But I remember reading stories like this where people would fake emergencies or they would do some other kind of publicity stunt specifically to get media attention and raise awareness about insert problem here. And I remember this sort of thing happening. It's not like it was an everyday occurrence or everything, but it wasn't, I don't remember it being like, it it was not completely unheard of, you know, put it that way. And one of the best examples I can think of is what I remember hearing about and how true this is, I honestly don't know. But I remember hearing like second or third hand about some woman who pretended to rob a uh, McDonald's that she used to work at in downtown Houston. And the person that she was robbing was in on it. And, you know, basically, you know, what she wanted to do was, I think, I think she was claiming that it was discrimination. And instead of filing a fucking lawsuit, I guess, because she realized she had no case, she wanted to make a big stink about it in the media. And it ended up not exactly working out so well for uh, what ended up happening, as I recall, you know, because of the fact that she used a real gun, which I don't even know if that would even make a difference. But, you know, whether you use a real gun or a fake gun, I think that you would still be charged with armed robbery no matter what. But, you know, she used a real gun. So for sure, she was charged with armed robbery and she ended up getting I mean, she might have been eligible for, um, you know, unemployment or something like that. And instead she was sentenced to the gray bar hotel. And then that was pretty much that. So now again, it wasn't like a major news item or anything like that. I just remember hearing about shit like that from other people and thinking, wow, that's really fucked up. People actually do stuff like that. And so when I read this comic, well, I'd heard of stuff like this. So that seemed fairly believable to me. So anyway, elsewhere we get into, um, this is our first, I don't think this is the first glimpse we've ever gotten of Bloodthirst. I don't think this was his first appearance. The way it goes in my mind is that we saw these little glimpses of him in uh, previous issues. And, you know, we still actually haven't even gotten the full reveal of him even yet. You know, um, actually, what am I saying? His first appearance was actually back in Man of Steel number 27. So exactly one issue before this. There you go. Thank you, Wikia. So, anyway. Um, 
this, we we would get little glimpses at him here and there, and guys, I mean, this villain. In my heart of hearts, what I want to believe is he was created sort of as a joke on a lot of those just way too muscular, scantily clad male characters that are basically wearing those strange kind of fetishy, leathery S&M types of outfits. And they've got to have the name Blood somewhere in their name and... Or they have to say they have to have the word blood somewhere in their name, and that in my heart of hearts, that's what I want to believe. But I look at some of the dialogue that this guy has, and I can't help thinking that you know what? Maybe Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov they thought they were dishing the gold here. You know, I don't know. All I know is that this is just a weird, fucked up and very 90s-ish kind of character, intentionally or not. And I just, I did not like that entire uh, bloodthirst storyline. Just wasn't for me. But, I don't know. Not the worst story I've ever read, just as I say, not for me. So, moving on from there, Keith and his unnamed buddy almost win Darwin Awards, and once again, Keith has to call out for Superman, and look, I realize that Keith and Myra and the orphanage and that just, that whole subplot, those things have their fans, all right? I know that there are people out there who ate that stuff up with a spoon, and they really enjoyed, um, you know, those aspects of the Man of Steel as an ongoing title, but guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. I never liked Keith. I never liked Myra. I never liked bullshit goings on at the orphanage or anything like that. It just didn't fucking care. And, you know, one of the criticisms that people have about Burn Age Superman and kind of the latter day 90s, mid to late 90s, I suppose, is there came a point when the supporting cast almost took over these books and the creators they seem to be more interested in their own personal projects and their own personal subplots than they were with Superman and this kind of macro narrative that was going on and you know guys it's hard for me to say that the people who who have that opinion it's kind of hard for me to say that they're wrong you know, because I don't really think there's any denying that things got a little too overboard at certain points, you know, with the Cadmus Project or with Alpha Centurion or fucking uh, uh, goings on with uh, Pipeline and Shadow Dragon or goings on with Keith and the fucking or uh, Orphanage or anything like that. You know, I, I can't say they're they're wrong, you know, I mean, it did get to be a little too much sometimes. You know, all the stuff that was going on with Dirk and Ashbury Armstrong and stuff like that. You know, it's like, who the fuck cares? I mean, honestly, who cares? So, and for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, Keith, Myra, and the, this whole orphanage thing is just, this concept is the poster child for everything that would go wrong with Superman later on, you know? 
So as a result, it's really hard for me to stomach this stuff, reading it as back issues, you know? So anyway. So anyway, as I say, these kids, they win um, bronze medals in the Darwin Awards because Superman swoops to the rescue, saves them both, even though I happen to favor natural selection in this case. And Superman then sees a satellite that's its orbit is decayed and it's basically crashing back down to earth so he swoops into the upper stratosphere catches the satellite pitches it back out and guys i'm gonna put this whole thing on pause and say i really don't know what the physics of that work out to but something tells me we're seeing a little bit of comic book shorthand here because i really don't think it would be so simple as to just catch the the satellite in orbit slow its descent somehow, and then throw it back out like that. I really don't think it would work that way, you know? Maybe it would. I don't know. But I just don't think it would work that way. And honestly, just to kind of fuck with Lex Luthor, I think my move would be to try to catch it. And if I can catch it and bring it back uh, back to the ground safely, instead of putting it back in orbit, just bring it back to the ground safely, give it to Lex and say... Well, here you go. Now you get to pay to relaunch this thing. <laughs> um, or if I can't stop it, just smash the thing to pieces and say, "Well, Lex, sorry, it was either it was either destroy the thing or let it destroy Metropolis." And I think the city is worth more than your precious satellite. So, <laughs> but either way, just kind of fuck with Lex Luthor a little bit. You know, what I mean, for whatever reason, you can't take the guy down. So why not troll him just a little, you know? Then again, we're talking about Lex Luthor II here, and Superman hasn't seen Lex Luthor II's true colors yet, so maybe it wouldn't occur to him to do this. You know? So, anyway. Then we get another brief little interlude with Bloodthirst, and I don't even want to fucking talk about it. Superman, coming back from orbit, sees a, a man drowning under the Hobbs Bay Bridge. So he swoops in, to or tries to swoop in to uh, rescue the guy then he gets attacked by uh, nuclear waste and as the battle is unfolding with nuclear waste basically all they're really trying to do is they're not trying to defeat superman they're basically just trying to keep him busy while uh, beasley drowns right that's really what they're doing but intercut with their fight at the bottom of each page we see the girl stacy mccall that was kidnapped earlier in this issue uh, she meets up with um, this mysterious shadowy figure who tries to give her a toy and all this stuff. <coughs> and guys, as I say, I'm just going to go and spoil this. This is Toy Man. All right, this is a sort of a reimagined Toy Man who's broken from reality. His grip on reality is basically completely snapped. And... I don't know. It's like he's equal part Norman Bates and I don't know, John Wayne Gacy, perhaps. But the guy, instead of being just kind of a mischievous terrorist with a fetish for toys, bent on revenge against Lex Luthor, the guy's just fucking nuts, all right? He's... Batshit crackers at this point. And 
This is a direction that Toy Man was taken. Look, I understand, I guess, Dan Jurgens and his rationale for making this change. He wanted Superman to have a character that's murderous, that's psychotic, that's dangerous, you know? And I get that. But this whole, I guess, murderous version of Michael Jackson you know, who wants to protect kids by kidnapping them from what he perceives to be unloving, unhappy homes. And he ends up killing at least one of them, for sure, which is to say Adam Morgan. He kills one of them, and I just think, you know, that's way over the line in terms of what needs to be seen and shown in in Superman comics. I've just got real problems with that, you know? I mean... Honestly, the version of Toy Man I think I like the most at this point is the one from Smallville, you know? And he's at least a little bit more of a threat due to the fact that he knows Clark's secret identity. But Clark has him a little bit over a barrel in that, well, if you tell the world who I am, you and I can't play our games anymore, now can we? And so... Yeah, I mean, he's got the goods. You know, Toy Man has got the goods. But what can he really do with it? You know, and I just kind of like that. He's manic, he's psychotic, but he's not... He's a murderer, but he doesn't murder children. I don't get the idea that Smallville from... Or sorry, um, that Toy Man from Smallville... I don't get the idea that he would ever intentionally kill a child. Maybe he would, I don't know, and I'm just blanking on it, but I really don't think he would he would kill a child. So, anyway. So, Superman eventually abandons the fight with nuclear waste. He dives into the drink. He rescues Beasley, turns him over to um, some uh, uh, emergency medics, and it's their opinion that he's probably going to make it. You know, and again, this is a big deal, right? The fact that Superman was able to reach Beasley in time, this is a big deal. You know, something happens. In fact, a lot of somethings happen because of the fact that Superman was able to save Beasley's life. You know, and that's one of the things that I just kind of like about this general era of Superman. You know, that an issue would introduce new subplots and it would also develop existing subplots and then it would also resolve other, like, extant subplots. And so it makes it a serious pain in the nuts to adapt these stories into, you know, sort of self-contained, I guess, feature-friendly animated movies that you can release directly to video. It's a pain in the balls to find Burn Age stories that are that, that, are that way. But... Not everything in life needs to be a movie. Not everything in life needs to be a TV show. It's okay with me that these comics work best as comics, you know? And maybe they don't need to be movies. Maybe they don't need to be animated features released directly to video. Maybe they don't need to be TV shows. Maybe all they need to be is comics. And that's good enough, you know? And I like that, that, you know... People always talk shit about, oh, Watchmen reinvented the form, fucking blah, blah, blah. You know, look, whatever. Watchmen is great, and I'd never say otherwise, but there are other things that you can do with comics as a form apart from Watchmen. And one of the things that 
for the longest time Burn Age Superman did not get credit for is the idea of this sort of macro narrative being told in micro chapters. You know, uh, three ongoing titles per year, and then four ongoing titles per year, and then ultimately four ongoing titles per year, and then one quarterly book, so that there was a new issue coming out literally every single week. You know? And I just fucking dig that. You know? I like that. And I, for I at least, appreciate that, you know, we're finally in an era where this iteration of Superman and this way of telling stories is being recognized for being as innovative as it truly was. You know? I just like that. You know? It, it, it's one of those things that I cherish about comics in general, but specifically about this era of Superman in particular. And guys, I gotta tell you, you know, trying to collect all of this stuff you know, at the time that it was coming out, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I didn't have any, I didn't have a job, didn't really have a whole lot of money coming in, you know, from allowances and stuff like that, or even from chores, didn't have a car to go to the, to uh, the uh, LCS to pick the shit up. You know, it was decidedly inconvenient for me that stories were told in this very intertwined kind of way, you know? But what I appreciated about it Today is the fact that, you know, I can look back on it now and say, man, that must have been a pain in the ass to tell stories that way. You know, because you have all of these different creative teams that are working. I don't care how many little flow charts they have. I don't care how many bull sessions they sit in on with each other. I don't care how many conference calls they have. At the end of the day, they're all working in a vacuum from one another. Nobody can be completely sure of what's going on in everybody else's uh, story. It's all taken on faith. And I just fucking love that, you know, in retrospect. At the time, like I say, it kind of sucked. But I love that in retrospect, you know. And these creative teams have my utmost respect for being able to manage all of this and making it look so effortless when, you know, common sense kind of says, guys, this had to be a colossal pain in the neck to get all of this stuff coordinated perfectly, you know? But they did, and kudos to them for doing it. So, anyway. That, I think, is basically it for this issue, and because of the fact that this is Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and not From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, if you want to find out who won Baldi Awards and all that stuff, or what the letter columns say in this issue, listen from... Or rather, listen to From Crisis to Crisis, episode number 155. And so that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. The Kirk Allen movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men. The 1950s television series, The Adventures of Superman. The Christopher Reeve movies, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.potomatic.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. 
You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>